going to start the lecture. Here we go. Okay, so we're going to talk today about civilization's beginnings and Mesopotamia in particular. And I have on the map here, more or less, uh, the area of the Fertile Crescent, which we're going to get into in a minute because the Fertile Crescent is a little bit of a misnomer. But the first thing I want to do is start with the fact that among the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, we have creation accounts. Okay, they have stories of where the world came from. And one story goes something like this. The gods were really sick and tired of all the mess around the palace where they lived. And so they made some creatures, us humans, who could be their servants and clean up their mess. Okay, that's one story. There's others. Um, there's another one that there's this sea monster named Tiamat. And the gods destroy this sea monster named Tiamat and divide up its corpse, and that's where the dry land comes from. All right, so there are creation accounts, but when you read the Genesis creation account, what you need to know is they're aware of these creation accounts. Okay, the writer of Genesis is aware of them and is writing those creation accounts as an argument, with, or writing the Genesis account as an argument with the other accounts. Does that make sense? as a kind of a criticism of them, all right? So let me give just one example, and this is getting into Genesis, which is next week. But um, one example is this. In the creation account, uh, when the sun and moon are created, they're not called by what they're typically called around in the people around that. They're called lights. They're not called the sun and the moon. Have you ever noticed that in Genesis? He created the great light for the day and the lesser light for the night to rule the day and the night. Why are they called lights? It's an argument with the critics who make the sun a god and the moon a goddess. And they're saying, no, guys, they're lights. They're clocks. And God made them. Does that make sense? Okay. Another example. In a lot of these Mesopotamian creation accounts, there's violence in the account. Again, killing of Tiamat is where the world comes from, right? It's cutting up the body of Tiamat. Would you call the creation account in Genesis violent? I would call it a dance. I would call it highly artistic and orchestrated, Okay. So it's important to note those accounts. Uh, likewise, there are um, ancient flood stories all right, in the people that lived in Mesopotamia. Particularly, the most famous flood story comes from uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, all right, which is a... We, I may have you read it. I'm, I'm a little disappointed. That's not in the book, is it? Did anybody notice it? I don't think it is. It's a little disappointing because it's a great story and it gives you a representative tale from Mesopotamia. Do you all know the story? Basically, there's a king, so there's a king of, uh, of Babylon, and the people of Babylon are really upset because he's really oppressive, which is sort of a biblical theme, right? I mean, that's what Samuel warned that kings would be, they'd be oppressive. And so they pray, and actually the gods get upset, and so they create a creature to be a match for, uh, for Gilgamesh. And this creature is this guy named Enkidu. He's a wild man, right? He's a wild, you know, he's a wild jungle dweller and Enkidu or excuse me they go and they get in a fight and ultimately the God it is decided that the way to tame this Enkidu is to send a woman to him and she civilizes him right and they become fast friends and and Gilgamesh and Enkidu travel around beat defeat ancient demon monsters 
and it's great, but the gods are sick of it because he kills a very important monster. Is your hand up? Oh, no. And so he is, he is killed. And it's actually one of the best stories from antiquity to represent the story of how sad Gilgamesh is in the death of his friend. All right? it's, it, it comes close to David's mourning over Jonathan. All right? It's really sad. And it makes Gilgamesh aware of the fact that he's mortal. But at any rate, we have all these stories. The Genesis flood account is there as an argument with all these other flood accounts. Okay? It's saying something against them. And again, we'll unfold that as we go. Um, so those are there. Uh, those creation accounts with violence and with humans as something like the servants of the gods. So let's talk about civilization itself. Um, what do we mean by civilization? When you think of civilization, what do you think of? People. Okay, but nomads are people, and they're not, wouldn't be, we wouldn't consider them civilized. Cities. Cities is one of the hallmarks of civilizations, Okay. What else? And by the way, cities don't have to be, you know, we think city and we think Winchester, Lexington. The earliest cities sometimes are, they're the area that this land is on and no bigger. And there could be thousands of people living in. Okay? They're very small and very compact. What else do we think of when we think of civilization? Countries. Countries. Yes. Let's say... For our purposes, empires. All right, because these earliest civilizations are more like what we would call an empire. What else? I typically think of it as like, I don't know, large like, amounts of land and people, but there's also like other species, like cities. Yeah, um, yeah, so you mean, well, so for example, when I say empire, I mean one people ruling over another people. Is that what you have in mind? Okay, all right. What else? Like uh, some form of education. Okay, uh, let's back it up. What, do you, what, is, what is central to most education? Yes, you're on the right track, but what is central to most education? Okay, writing. Okay, um, let's see. One other big thing. Yes, but before you have commerce, you've got to have this. Yeah, yeah what, there's a military class, and let's just say classes, but there's something else. When you have commerce, you're doing what? Currency. Yeah, but before you have currency, what do you have? You trade, and what do you trade? What? And what are those goods you're trading? Farming. Agriculture. <laughs> Okay, most people, most people think, I can't spell agriculture, y'all spell agriculture. Okay, <laughs> most people uh, would say that what begins civilization is agriculture. All right, you're a nomad. A nomad means you follow the food, right? You're hunting, you're following the food, you happen to know that there's this forest that has maybe these fruits or this product, and you go there seasonally, and one day some bright person says, wait a minute, I wonder if we could take these seeds and plant them in the ground and get that crop. Of course, if you do that, you need to be organized. And what else do you need? If you're going to do agriculture, what do you need? Dirt. You need dirt. What else? Water. You need water. So where do all of the earliest civilizations around the world appear? 
but it's not just a fertile crescent. Like in China, this happens. In India, this happens. Rivers. Rivers in particular. Okay. Rivers in particular. Why is that? They're freshwater, they're big, okay, we're not talking creeks. And this is where we get into the misnomer of this whole area. So this whole area is called the Fertile Crescent. But I think you should put fertile in scare quotes, okay? Because when we mean fertile, or when we say fertile, we think forests, okay? Over there, it's pretty much everything is a desert except near bodies of water, particularly rivers. Okay? So that's why I say, does everybody understand why I say fertile? I wouldn't exactly call it fertile in our sense. Okay? We're lush and verdant. They would have seen North America and thought, where does all this greenery and water come from? Okay? Because in the Middle East, in antiquity, you get very far from the bodies of water in its desert, and nothing grows, or very little grows, okay? Does that make sense? So what happens is people wind up hugging, the earliest civilizations hug the rivers, all right? This is going to be especially true in um, Egypt. If you look at a map of Egypt today, a map of Egypt at night where you can see lights, the lights are on the Nile, and that is it, okay? Even now, you basically can't live very far from the Nile because it is dry, 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 dry desert, okay? So, um, so the earliest civilizations have these things. Cities, always, 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 especially in Mesopotamia, with walls. What does that tell you? Okay, if in your neighborhood everybody locks their doors and has bars on their windows, tells you something about the crime rate. If everybody in your neighborhood never locks their doors and, you know, there's valuable goods outside and they never get bothered with it, tells you something, right? They're not worried about security. All of these cities that pop up in Mesopotamia have, um, have walls around them, and that tells us an awful lot about the volatility of life in Mesopotamia. Um, most of these cities, as it says, what happens is one city pops up, is strong, conquers another city, and what we usually have is these empires that cover the whole area where one city conquers all these other cities and rules over them. All right? And this is true during the time of Babylon in Scripture, which is later. Assyria, the, what's the ruling city of Assyria? Anybody know? Babylon is the ruling city of Babylon. What's the ruling city of Assyria in the Bible in Old Testament times? Jonah went there. Nineveh. Nineveh. Okay. Um, so we have these vast empires. Writing is key. Okay, the earliest civilization is writing. Somebody said commerce. You can't do commerce without. How can you do commerce if you can't tabulate what you've traded? Okay, so the earliest writing from Mesopotamia is super boring because it's basically I've given this many oxen for this much wheat. Okay, it's just a record keeping procedure. The other thing to keep in mind with writing is the earliest writing systems were a secret technology that only a few could know, all right? It would be something like, I don't know what it is, it's a secret technology, okay? Only a few could know, and here's why only a few could know. The earliest writing systems were syllabaries. They were not alphabets, 
Okay, what is an alphabet? You have a limited number of characters. Hopefully every character represents a sound in the language. In cuneiform and other writing systems at the time, they're something like 600 to 1,000 characters. Does everybody understand why very few people could, were literate and why it was a secret technology? The reason they were, the, they were that way is because somebody hadn't gotten the idea of an alphabet. This is the way it went. You would have a character for ba, a character for be, a character for bi, a character for bo, a character for boo. You got it? Ka-te-ke-ko-ku. Fa-fe-fe-fo-fu. Ta-te-te-cho-tu. You following? All right. That multiplies characters. They did not come up with the insight. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We can have an even simpler system. All right. And that, which is interesting, the people who made the first use, the greatest use of an alphabetic system, which is what I'm talking about, were the Hebrews. Okay? The, the writings of the Old Testament are in one of the earliest scripts. We have other examples. So at any rate, these writing systems mainly recorded boring, either <coughs> boring uh, trade transactions or, we'll talk about this in a minute, um, laws. Um, so, again, that transition from hunter-gatherer to agriculture is probably what gives rise to cities. And in cities, people quickly realize we need laws. And in cities, you get the development of these hierarchies. Okay? Usually, you have a king, you have priests, then you have a military class, then you have what we might call freemen, and then you have slaves. Okay? Uh, and they were very hierarchical. All right? Um, now, what do you think people in the cities think of nomads? Think American history, guys. Go back to American history. What did farmers in the West think of cowboys? They were nomads. Savages. All right, dirty, certainly. Were cowboys dirty? Yeah. Kind of fair. I mean, by city standards, what else? All right, think about it. Water's precious. Dew with a thousand sheep shows up, or a thousand goats shows up, and you're a farmer who's guarding your water. You know, it's precious. Okay, the civilizations of antiquity didn't like nomads. Remember when Joseph and his family, Jacob, they come down to Egypt. And it said that the Egyptians didn't even eat with a Jew. All right, part of it was because, and you guys go live over in Goshen. Part of it was because this clash between civilization and nomads. All right, so it's interesting that when God calls Abraham out of Ur, He calls him to be a. He becomes a nomad for a good, a, a great deal of time until he's able to settle down in Canaan. All right, so agriculture fixes people. It creates these hierarchies. Language comes out of that. Again, water supplies are important, but here's the problem. All of this, what is the soil, mainly? It's sand, okay, except around the rivers. But who knows what happens when rivers flood in sandy substrate? Okay, that's true. One of, the, one of the great things about the rivers is they put down silt, and that's natural fertilizer. They didn't need fertilizer. But also, if the rivers flood in a place... Well, you've been in the Kentucky River. There's the Palisades. What happens in a sandy terrain when rivers flood? They can jump miles. You with me? Here's a city. There's a flooding, severe flooding, 
And all of a sudden, the river's three miles in another direction. Okay? That, by the way, has happened to the Mississippi River a lot in our history early on, that cities that were once on the river are suddenly in the middle of the country. Okay? So that happens especially in Mesopotamia. Uh, Their rivers are incredibly erratic, which is part why there's these flood stories, right? Uh, Because they have this erratic flooding. But it also means that they need to irrigate. But to irrigate, you've got to have this hierarchy. Okay, you've got to have somebody at the top bossing everybody else around to achieve these vast, um, these vast engineering works. So was there rain before the flood? Uh, oh, you're speaking in terms of the Bible? Yeah. In the biblical account, no. Right? There's no rain until the flood. There's mist. We'll get into that. on the, But yeah, no. All right. Okay. Um, so... Let's go into a little bit more details of city life. As I said, they're all walled. Um, some walls, some of the biggest cities, some of these cities are really big. In some cities, the walls were said to be so wide up top that six chariots could ride abreast. Okay? So there's these vast walls. But I want to talk about several features. So they're all walled. Um, Probably the most famous, actually, it's the, I think it's the only, of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and this is much later than our period of time, but it tells you something about the lifestyle. Of the seven wonders of the ancient world, I'm, I think only one of them is from Mesopotamia. Anybody know what it is? The Not the pyramid, that's Egypt. We're talking Mesopotamia. Oh, by the way, what does Mesopotamia mean? So the Greek word for river is potomos, and meso means what? Between. So the Greek word is potomos, so between two rivers. This is what we call Mesopotamia. Um, And then, of course, what's the river in Washington, D.C.? The Potomac. Okay, It's, it's the river river. They just named it for the Greek word for river. And what are the big, giant creatures in the rivers in Africa? Hippopotamus. Which means river horse. But it should be fat river horse. They're huge. Okay, so in Mesopotamia, what was I saying? What was I asking? Oh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Okay, why were they called the Hanging Gardens? So here's a Mesopotamian city with vast walls around it, all right? And we have, you know, structures. They're not going to be really tall, all right, all over the city. I'm not going to fill all that in. But in the center of every Mesopotamian city uh, was what we call a ziggurat, which is kind of like a pyramid, but it's stepped. Okay, it has steps, it has stages. And that ziggurat, uh, the most famous ziggurat is what? And here's the word ziggurat. The most famous ziggurat or infamous ziggurat is what? Early in the Bible, multiple languages. The Tower of... Okay, the most, that's the most famous ziggurat, right? They all have these... Uh, stepped pyramids, which at the top is where the priests would do sacrifices to the gods. 
right? And actually, these ziggurats were a kind of idolatrous version of Eden, right? We'll get into this next week, but Eden, if you pay attention to the description, was at the top of a mountain, all right? Four rivers flowed down from Eden. When mankind moves away from Eden, they move down, all right? And they also move what direction of the compass? It was the Steinbeck novel, East of Eden, right? Isn't that a great name for a novel? I think, yeah. So you know what's going to happen in this book. You don't know anything about the book, but it's called East of Eden. What's the implication? It ain't good, okay? If it's called East of Eden, it means mankind moving away from God's presence. It's, it's going to be bad, and there's a lot of bad stuff in East of Eden. All right, so I'm still answering the question about the Hanging Gardens. So this is a typical Mesopotamian city. Um, the ziggurat in the middle of it, it's the most important thing. It was an idolatrous version of Eden. Everybody understand that? It was sort of a man-made Eden, and we're going we're gonna to make our way to God with our sacrifices. So the hanging gardens of Babylon was that the ziggurat in Babylon was covered over with vegetation. It was covered over with, it was a big garden, okay? Basically a stepped garden. And the walls of the city of Babylon at the time that this, the seven wonders were sort of uh, first articulated was sky blue. So you're crossing the desert and you're coming up on this city and you see the walls, they blend into the sky, but the ziggurat is covered over with vegetation. So it looks like there's this little garden just floating in the air, hanging in the air. How did they color it? How did they, yeah, I don't know where they got that pigment. You know, it's kind of interesting, just pigments, like in antiquity where they got colors, because what is Lydia in the Bible? Remember, it says she's a merchant of a certain kind. Anybody remember what she's a merchant of? She sold purple. Because you could only get purple color from a unique sourcing. I think it was a plant at the time. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where they got the pigment. Um, but some colors are rarer. This is, you know, lapis lazuli was big because that was a source of, that was a source of blue. Um, but at any rate, I'm not exactly sure. So at any rate, everybody understand what it was called? The Hanging Gardens. All right. So, um, so they have these walls. They have these these hierarchies. Again, the priests are really important, and it only it's only people in the usher, upper echelons who know how to write. Um, the power in these Mesopotamian city states was was rooted in conquest. Okay, remember in the Bible when David has his. Uh, Escapade with Bathsheba. Does anybody remember what it says? In the spring of the year... When kings go out to battle, David's there. Okay, when kings go out to battle. So what does that mean? In the spring of the year, every year... Kings went out to battle. And it was kind of like, well, everybody lives in walled cities, and it's a very violent place, and there's a lot of conquest, so you better strike before you get struck. All right? And that's the way it went. There was typical... It was typical for there to be conquest. The other thing is... Um, this gets back to geography. If I'm over here, okay, which is the biblical homeland, right? This is where most of the stories of the Bible take place. Jerusalem is here. Jericho is here. If I'm over here and I want to go here, I can't go like this. Why? I will die of 
thirst. Don't say starvation. I will die of thirst, okay? And heat exhaustion. You can't do it. So how do you go? You have to follow the waterways, okay? Um, and so what happens, though, is if you think of the rivers as transportation, then if I rule here and I rule a neighboring city and I'm pretty powerful, it's very easy for me to quickly rule the whole area. Okay, all the city-states scattered through here. It's very, it's very easy for me to dominate in that whole area. Okay, a um, few other things. Um, we already mentioned cuneiform. We should mention their math, okay? Their math we still use. Does anybody know how we still use the math of the dwellers of ancient Mesopotamia? What in our mathematics is still based on their system? So... All everything in our mathematics based on 12 and 60 comes from Mesopotamia. So what is based on 60? Our units of time are still based on 60, which is a multiple of 12. And the whole system over there is based on, the whole system there was based on 12. Remember, they didn't have zero. They didn't have a 10-base system. And do you know how to count 12 with your, hand, with your fingers? Do you know how to count 12 with your fingers? Like, our system, we think, is based on 10 because, obviously, 10, you know, five digits on each. But where does 12 come from with your hands? Well, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. All right, which is a hand you can use your thumb as the counter. Okay, it's a handy way to do. It's a handy way to do twelve. So their system was based on um, their system was based on twelve. Sixty is a multiple of twelve. And by the way, there are some things that are easier. Like, isn't it easier to use a twelve base when you're cutting up a pie or a pizza than a ten base? It's easier to do division. Like when when you if you want to equally divide ten, what do you get? Or if you divide it three ways. 3.3333333, right? But with 12, it's much easier to divide, multiples of 3 and 12. Okay, I'm not going to require you to know the details of the various kingdoms, the Sumerians and then the Akkadians. We're not going to get into that. The things I'm sharing, the broad things, are what I want you to know and what I might quiz you on. But let's talk about the Code of Hammurabi um, for a little bit. Uh, first of all, general impressions. What did you all think of the Code of Hammurabi? Okay, harsh. Anybody agree with that? It seems exceptionally harsh. What else? What did you think of... So one of the questions was that whole introductory section was super long. What do you make of that? What's the point of all that? He was just boasting about how great he was. Okay, and why was he boasting? Now, Achilles boasts, I think, for a very different reason than Hammurabi is boasting in this code. Achilles is boasting because honor is super important in that culture, right? My honor, your respect and acknowledgement of my greatness. Why is he boasting? Is he boasting to show like, why he has the right to make the law? Okay, it's legitimating his rules, right? Why should we listen to you? Well... Did anybody count? I didn't count. I mean, he goes on and on and on and on, right? All these great, all his conquests, right? The list of all his conquests is all about legitimating his power. You should listen to me because I brought peace, prosperity, beaten all the bad guys, 
added all this territory to the kingdom, etc., etc., etc. So that's kind of interesting. Because again, there are some ways, now when you were reading this, did you think at any point, you know, some of these are kind of like the laws in the Old Testament. Some of them are similar. And it's worth thinking about where they're similar and where they're different. But especially in this, it's interesting, it's interesting to think how is the, the, let me just throw this question out there. Why does God say you should listen to his laws versus what Hammurabi says? Okay. Uh, I think that's an important distinction to pay attention to and think about. Okay. Um, let's just, I want to mention a couple of these crimes or these sort of recommend, recommended crimes and tell me what you think of them. If a man bring an accusation against a man and charge him with a capital crime, what's a capital crime? Yes, capital means they remove your capital. Okay. <laughs> Corporal means some sort of bodily punishment, right? But not removing your capital. All right, so if you bring a capital crime but cannot prove it, the accuser shall be put to death. Now, what does this strict rule make happen? You're probably not going to report a crime unless you are absolutely certain that you can prove that it happened, yes? Many witnesses. So in some senses, would y'all agree? Yeah, that's not, that's not bad. I mean, does that make sense? Now, you have to keep in mind, they didn't have courts like we do. All right, so how do you do these things? Well, they wanted to make sure that a capital crime only occurred when it was very clear that you could prove it. That's actually not bad jurisprudence, right? Uh, we could argue whether the accuser should be put to death if he couldn't support it, but at least it's, uh, it's based on we want to make sure this really happened. Um, how about this? This is interesting. If a man steal an ox, steal ox or sheep, ass or pig, or boat, boat, that's interesting. I just now noticed that. Why is that interesting? Yeah, and is there any mention of stealing a boat in the Old Testament? No, you know why? Because they were in the desert. Nobody's traveling by boat in the desert. In fact, when they crossed the sea, they crossed on dry land. And then when they lived, we'll get into this, when they lived in Palestine, there's, no, there's not really navigable, navigable rivers. Okay, you don't get around typically by boat. All right, but I'm, I got distracted. He shall, if it be from the temple or palace, he shall restore 30-fold. What does that mean? He stole an ox? He's got to give him 30 ox. (laughs) If it be from a freeman, what does that mean? Just your average everyday citizen? He shall render it tenfold. Wow. Okay. What do you think about that? So from the palace, 30-fold. From your average citizen, tenfold. Any thoughts? Why the difference? What does that say about their values? The, you know, the government, I guess, is more important. Okay, the people... So, the people in higher society uh, are more important, right? Their property, in a sense, is more valuable. Uh, here's an interesting one. Uh... If a man aid a female slave of the palace or a male or female slave of a freeman to escape from the city gate, he shall be put to death. What does this say that they valued? Slaves. Okay, they value slavery. How about this one? Um, I thought this was really interesting. 
If the brigand be not captured, the man who has been robbed shall, in the presence of God, make an itemized statement of his loss. And the city and the governor in whose providence and jurisdiction the robbery was committed shall compensate him for whatever was lost. Paraphrase that. So I'm robbed. I make an itemized list. What happens? If they can't catch the guy, what happens? The government gives it to you. The government pays me back what I was lost. Now, A, do we have that now? We actually don't. It'd be kind of nice <laughs> if, if the government had to give you, give you back what was stolen from you if they couldn't catch them. But what does this do? This is so interesting. What does it do? Okay, yes, but what is it aiming at doing? Uh, that might be. Although, remember, they don't like false. They, I don't think they had a law for this, but if they could prove that you lied about it, they'd probably cut your hand off or kill you. I don't know. They're in the river. But what is this? I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about I'm trying to communicate without giving it away. What it, so I'll just say it, okay? If I'm the ruler... It behooves me to keep crime down. You follow that? If I have to pay people when they're robbed, then it behooves me to do whatever I can do to make sure we catch robbers or robbery doesn't happen. Okay? Does that make sense? So it's kind of interesting. Um, that's different. Um, <laughs> how about this one? If outlaws collect in the house of a wine cellar, it's basically a bar. And she does not arrest those outlaws and bring them to the palace. That wine cellar shall be put to death. What's going on there? So we're all wine cellars women? It's common. Why is that? Anybody know? Why is it common that in history women were the brewers of alcohol? It's not always the case, but it's often the case. It's kind of a domestic sphere thing, right? You have to be at home monitoring the fermentation process, kind of whatever. Um, so, yeah, what's behind that? What? Um, she's supposed to arrest all of the outlaws. <laughs> yeah, so it says, yeah, arrest these outlaws and bring them to the palace. I, I think what it says is that places where people drink are typically places where crime, you know, foments, and it behooves these women to be sure they keep you know, upright establishments and don't allow criminal activity to f uh, fester there. Does that mean, like, does she actually have to arrest them or does she, like, have to report them? We have what we have. We don't know exactly. So, so for some of these, a lot of the question is some people think that these laws are exemplary. In other words, does everybody understand what that means? It's not like they carried them all out in exact detail. They're giving broad outlines to how you should think about it. And it would be up to a judge to determine what to do in those situations. Does that make sense? So we think some of these laws are that way, that they're not exactly followed to the letter. There was one other one I wanted to... Um, oh, how about this one? I like this one. You ready? If a builder builds a house and did not make its construction firm and the house which he has built collapses and causes the death of the owner of the house, that builder shall be put to death. Now, I don't know about the put to death. What do y'all think of that? I think when people don't face consequences for shoddy work, we get a lot of shoddy work. I'm not saying put them to death. 
But the Romans had a similar law. A guy who designed a bridge had to have his family stand under the bridge while a Roman legion marched over the top. Pretty, not a bad idea, okay? I think when in society there's a lot of people who don't have, as some people call it, skin in the game, like a reason that, hey, my, my neck's on the line here if things don't go well, it matters. Um, Hammurabi, the perfect king am I. Okay, I want to draw attention to that, okay? Because this is typical of ancient law codes. Doesn't matter how big or small, he's a famous early law code. Um, what I want to point out is in the writing about the kings, that is what you get. You go to Egypt, the pharaohs, what they write, what they put up permanently in stone is about how great they are. Okay? They're not like, well, I was kind of not great at this. Or, I was, you know, I got defeated in, the, in this way. What, the reason I draw attention to this is it's yet another contrast with the Bible. What do I mean? In, like, David, the final outlines of sins in detail and all the things he did wrong. All right, guys, what I want you to appreciate is how astounding that is. That in the literature of a people, the sins of a king are outlined. More that in the literature of a people, their defeats are outlined. And there's moral lessons to be drawn from their defeats. That did not happen, okay? All of antiquity, the writing about kings is Hammurabi, perfect king am I, okay? It's called, we call that propaganda, all right? And most of that ancient history that we find is propaganda. Um, this, however, and again, this is where we, we can't draw too sharp a contrast because this reminds me of the Old Testament, that the strong might not oppose the weak and that they should give justice to the orphan and widow. That's actually a refrain in the Old Testament, right? Uh, that's one of the things that Israel was to be concerned about is the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, or, yeah, the stranger, the migrant. Um, okay. So, just briefly, how, did y'all find this difficult reading? Kind of boring. What did y'all think of it? Just comment on it. I mean, yeah, but eventually, like, okay, this guy's going on and on about his, yeah. What else? What were you about to say? Um, I was honestly just, like, I kind of saw the part where he was, like, praising himself on the wood test that the got to Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's all a preamble. And by the way, that's very common, right? We're going to find in Israel's laws, well, so the Ten Commandments, how do they start? Yeah, but before that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. There's a preamble. It's not as long, right? But it is based on what God has done for Right? It is saying that God has done something for them and basing, um, basing their uh, obedience to that law on that. Okay, um, a few more things about uh, Mesopotamian religion okay, in these city-states. Again, we would say that um, it, it was superstitious. There was a lot of astrology, which what is astrology? Like, not worship of the stars, but believing that the stars... Okay, if you want the fancy word for it, it's astral determinism. Okay, it means the idea that the stars determine our fates. Now, you think, well, we're not like that. Um, 
But there are, we have things that are sort of like that where we think, oh, well, I'm an introvert. Right? And that kind of determines who I am. Or I'm an extrovert. Or we have things that are sort of like that. But they studied the stars, and they actually were good astronomers, not because they were like astronomers like in the, like in the Middle Ages, but because they wanted to determine the future. They wanted to determine uh, the course of events, weather patterns, what they could predict in war. So astrology was the study of the stars for what we would call divination, all right? trying to determine the future. Another practice of divination that they had was reading livers, okay? You could bring a sacrifice. Now, again, this is worth comparing. There's no divination in the Old Testament, or let me rephrase. It's prohibited, right? But among uh, Mesopotamian religions, if I wanted to know, say, how an endeavor was going to go, I could bring an animal, they would sacrifice it, pull the liver out, and read the liver, okay? And we've actually found old uh, we found clay livers where they've mapped out, you know, if there's a spot here, this is what that means. And if there's a spot here, this is what that means. You know that's that's yeah. So we don't know a lot of details, but basically if, if based on the shape of the liver or various appearances on the liver. I mean, so these are all practices of divination. And by the way, we still have a mania for divination. Yes. I mean, we want to know the future. Right. Uh, the farmer's almanac is a slightly less superstitious sort of... And I don't know how reliable the Farmer's Almanac is. Does anybody, anybody know what the Farmer's Almanac is? I mean, I know you guys do. Farmer's Almanac is really old in American history. Uh, and it's this, it's this... It'll say what the winter's going to be like. Have you ever paid attention to how accurate it is from year to year? I mean, we want to know, right? It's kind, of, it's kind of valuable to know these things. If you want to get into the field today, it's statistics. Right? If you can show that you can tell what's going to happen in the future, um, people will pay you a lot of money. Okay. Um, let's just close really quickly with these aspects of Mesopotamian religion. Um, there's obviously many gods. All right. When you read that, did your eyes just, did your head just spin with all the different gods and goddesses? All right. There's a lot of them. Um, and it's hard to keep track of them. Um, one thing I would note, and this may go a long way towards your paper, so think about this, is there's nothing like the Psalms of David for the Mesopotamian gods, or for the Greek gods for that matter. Okay? To some degree, you could say some Greek character or another is loyal to the god, but it seems often like a quid pro quo. Does everybody know what I mean by that? I'm doing this in the hope that I get something out of this God, okay? And that is really one of the characteristics of idolatry. I do this religious activity in the hope of getting a particular thing out of it, right? But if you read the Psalms of David, he genuinely loved God because God loved him. Because God had shown him kindness that he realized he didn't deserve, right? So... This is a real distinction between Israel and the, those who worship gods of Mesopotamia. They were these mysterious forces to be manipulated, hopefully to get what you want. But they weren't somebody you loved. They weren't somebody who called forth a deep kind of a covenant loyalty. Does that make sense? Um, I think that's worth thinking about. Your paper's about Achilles and... 
uh, David, your quarter paper, but it's helpful to think, well, what was Achilles' relationship with the gods that were important to him like? And how might I compare that to David's relationship with God, right? Uh, how does he relate to the God? All right, a few other things, and then we'll wrap it up. What time is it? Okay, just a few more things. Um, so this is what country? This is Egypt. Uh, this is Mesopotamia and all of the kingdoms, you know, Babylon, Assyria, Persia. They're all sort of based out here. This is where most of the Bible takes place, okay? So what is this? Body of water? Well, it's the source of the Jordan. Sea of Galilee, okay, which is basically a large inland lake, two miles by seven miles-ish. This is the Jordan. The Jordan is like a pretty big creek, okay? It's not what we would call a river. Like, it's not really navigable, in a big way. with I mean, you go down a canoe, but not really, you know, like a transport goods. And then this is? The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. Um, the Dead Sea, here's something interesting. It's, what is it geographically, the somethingest? Lowest body of water on the planet. If you were to cut a canal here, so that the Mesopotamian or so that the Mediterranean River could fill it, it would be like, I don't know, it would be like that. Okay, it's way below sea level. Right? Uh, it's also, I don't know if we know its salt content in antiquity, but I always just for comparison to illustrate it this way. The ocean is about six percent salinity. Now, you know, when you go to the ocean you get water in your mouth, that's pretty salty. That's saltier than you'd like your soup, I would think. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think if you drank ocean water, it would really be bad for you, right? That's why people dive, you know, there's all that water, they're tempted to drink it, and then it just makes their problem worse when they're on a raft. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is 9% salinity. The Dead Sea is 34%. Okay? So this is why, if you've ever seen people swimming in the Dead Sea, I encourage you to look up YouTube videos of this. They're floating on the surface. Like, it's hard to go under the water. You're like a duck. It's hard to get under there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Here's the other thing. Don't get in if, ladies, if you've shaved your legs or if you have any cuts, because, hello, okay? It's like bathing in alcohol, right? It is, it is really intense. So, it's interesting, it's this interesting feature, it doesn't really give us much useful, um, you can't fish in it. The only, we used to think nothing lived in it, now we know there's um, micro, microorganisms on the vents that feed it below, but um, that's it. <laughs> Alright, um, here's the last thing I want to end with though, this preview an idea that I want to ask you to carry with you. These kingdoms, Egypt and the kingdoms that kept popping up here in Mesopotamia, I'm going to compare it to a big cat. Whoops. Okay. And I'm not going to draw much of it. Okay. They're the predators of the ancient world. They're big. They're powerful. They have huge armies. Um, I did that the wrong way. It doesn't matter. Okay. Ah, I did it again. It looks like a pumpkin. You get the idea. All right. Israel. I'm going to compare... To a mouse. Okay? Just because 
The geography of these territories allowed them to be big, powerful, rich, strong, almost invincible. And nothing in the territory that Israel settled in went toward that. Does that make sense? Most of the time in the history, in history in the Bible, when Israel was doing well, maybe would have a, a victory against these greater powers, it was because something was going on there that meant maybe they were in famine or maybe they had problems. Okay? So think of it at a national scale like David and Goliath. Does that make sense? Just in terms of their resources, if you were playing risk, you don't want Israel. Okay? But this is important for theological reasons because it made them dependent on God. Right? We can say the same thing about their sources of water. They had nothing like the Nile or the Tigris or Euphrates, so they were dependent on what? Jordan. The Jordan really didn't. The problem is all of the arable farmland is up uphill of the Jordan. This is in a deep rift, so that water never gets there. They were mainly dependent on, on rainfall. Okay? Um, so once again, dependent on God. All right, so this is, I think, deliberate on God's part. They were small, and they had to depend on God. If they depended on God, they did well. All right, any questions? All right, do you all have something to turn in?